I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon, or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Elise. How's it going? It's going okay. How are you? I'm also doing okay. I'm really excited to talk about today's topic for Titus. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really important one that we start Titus with. I agree. What are we discussing today, Courtney? We're discussing trauma in Titus. Mm-hmm. And oh boy, is there a lot of trauma. And I agree with you that this is a great topic to start with because it's at the center of this play. Right. And when we talk about Titus, when we perform Titus, we have to consider the role of trauma, how to represent it, and the consequences of our representations of trauma. And this work is essential, not to toot our own horns, but the work we do, I think, is essential in picking it apart and making it practical for theater makers. I agree. With that said, we are going to start off with our Titus content warning. As we have said at the top of all of our Titus episodes, Titus covers topics that may not be suitable for all listeners, and we advise to please listen with care as we will be discussing throughout our time with Titus topics such as depictions and descriptions of acts of mutilation, graphic discussions of sexual assault and rape, overt racism, non-consensual cannibalism, and torture. Again, please listen with care. Thank you for the content warning. If you are sticking around with us today, 
let's go. Let's talk about trauma and Titus. Okay. Elise, you have something to talk about, like, as a framing, which is trauma theory. Right. I am not a licensed therapist or psychologist, so um, I'm going to be starting off by discussing what is trauma theory. So I want to start off with defining what are we talking about when we talk about trauma. The American Psychiatric Association defines trauma in their section on post-traumatic stress disorder as exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. Directly experiencing the traumatic events, witnessing in person the events as it occurred to others, learning that the traumatic events occurred to a close family member or close friend, experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to adverse details of traumatic events. Note, this criteria does not apply to exposure through electronic media, television, movies, or pictures unless this exposure is work-related. They further define traumatic events as possibly including natural disasters, serious accidents, terrorist attacks, war or combat, rape or sexual assault, historical trauma, intimate partner violence, and bullying. So that's trauma. Mm -hmm. Trauma theory is the study of what does trauma do to a person and trying to theorize what actually is happening in the mind of a person who has experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. So some of these theories say things like trauma shatters the subject's assumptive world, what they assume to be true about the world. Or it assaults the self and the self in relationship, shattering their inner understanding of self versus the world. Trauma theory also says that when trauma is caused by humans, it can do more lasting damage than trauma caused by natural events or accidents. According to Deborah Willis's article, The Gnawing Vulture Revenge, Trauma Theory and Titus Andronicus, this could affect, quote, one's assumptions about human relationships, one's basic trust in others. Willis goes on to say that one trauma theory of particular interest to Titus Andronicus is Richard B. Ullman and Doris Brothers' theory put forth in their book, The Shattered Self, A Psychoanalytic Study of Trauma, which suggests that traumatic events shatter, quote, central organizing fantasies of self in relation to self-object. Such fantasies are meaning structures that organize the subject's experience of selfhood, unquote. And a self-object is, quote, any person experienced as subjectively connected to and extended from self who enables a cohesive sense of selfhood to emerge through experiences of being admired, praised, and valued, and through idealizing identification, unquote. So often an example of a self-object is the primary caregiver in early childhood development, where for a period of time, a infant doesn't necessarily see the primary caregiver as a separate being from themselves. They see them as a continuation of themselves and gain their identity through interacting with them. This is particularly interesting, Willis notes, to see this idea of relationships between self and self-object being shattered when we look at honor societies, because culture also plays a huge difference in how we experience trauma and what is traumatic. Willis notes that in the honor society of Rome in Titus, where, quote, when family members are murdered, raped, or injured, other members of the family also feel damaged, as if part of the self has been lost or killed along with the family member, unquote. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> I just want to chime in and say I read about that as well, and it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I will get into that 
in my reading, but like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that idea of trauma shattering the relationship and the inner workings of the difference between self, self-object, and other or object of what is traumatic or what is trauma is um, what is trauma in Titus. So, right. Willis goes on to say that, quote, this play invites us to see how characters of both sexes turn to revenge in the aftermath of trauma to find relief from terrible pain. What is done to contain trauma reproduces trauma in others, unquote, in Titus Andronicus. She specifically notes, I believe, five moments of trauma, the initial being the war dead who were killed by Tamara and her family. In the Goths and war. In the Goths and war. So the trauma actually predates the, the like, beginning start of, of the play. play. Yeah. We've come in. There's already been a traumatic action. In order to resolve, work through that trauma um, and like seek justice for it and feel resolved, Titus and the Romans um, sacrifice Alarbus, yeah. Tamara's son. Then to resolve the Roman resolve trauma. the trauma, yeah, yeah, to resolve the Roman trauma, Tamara and her family are then traumatized and injured, and to seek revenge for that, she has Chiron and Demetrius murder Bastianus, mm-hmm. also lead to the death of Quintus and Mucius, and also rape and mutilate Lavinia. Willis also points out that like the trauma in Titus rebounds and. They intensify and they always, quote, seek to reenact a traumatic scene with the roles reversed, unquote, every time. Yeah, they're like ping ponging the ball goes yeah. the, uh, into the other team's court. You killed my son. I'm going to kill one of your sons. Oh, you killed my son. I'm going to kill multiple of your children, your son-in-law and hurt your, your daughter. Your daughter. Willis goes on to theorize that the like feeding of Chiron and Demetrius to Tamara is a form of sexual assault because it's returning children in into her. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's like always doubling, redoubling. And she does call out that these characters don't have what we would now define as post-traumatic stress disorder. However, their revenge, quote, allows them to restore the damaged self-self-object relationship by recuperating an honorable family image, unquote. For however long that lasts until someone, you know. Performs more trauma. Performs more trauma. Yes. Yeah. On a final note, she notes, what I'm going to leave as a final note on this is that, quote, what seems to the injured family like justice is perceived by the family's enemies as unjust and produces new traumas in need of containment by revenge, unquote. That sounds about right. (laughs) That's interesting because that's cushioning the research that I did on Lavinia and that trauma really well in this idea of the self and the self object. Mm-hmm. My my uh, research was on specifically the metatheatrical return of rape and rape victims. And I do want to do a disclaimer in my research. Uh, I am going to be using the word rape often. And also... I am going to be talking about cis women specifically in this because it's couched in early modern history, early modern crime and assault. And so even though we here at Shakespeare Anyone recognize that 
rape and sexual assault happen to people across spectrums and genders. I'm specifically talking about early modern cis women. So my research is Rape's Metatheatrical Return, Rehearsing Sexual Violence Among the Early Moderns. And this is by Kim Solga. Solga asks the question about theater practitioners understanding theater as a potentially effectual form of public art and expression. So what are the consequences of theater practitioners putting certain stuff on stage and how they represent them? And in a modern day, how do we build a response to and an ethics of that risk into our own works? How are we being conscious of this? We are looking at, you know, what is the effect of placing this part of life, this part of trauma on the stage? What does it say? What are the consequences? And so now we're going to head to 1594 London, and we're going to talk about our young noble woman who is raped and mutilated. That's Lavinia. Now, Lavinia as a character is educated enough to know that there is a script that she must adhere to clear herself of wrongdoing. We know now that there is no wrongdoing as a victim, but in the context of Titus, there is wrongdoing. Essentially, Lavinia has to prove that she was a victim of the assault. Mm-hmm. And because of the circumstances of Titus, her mutilation, she has lost her hands and her tongue. Her mutilation leaves her unable to perform the ritualized recitation of the events. So our character, Lavinia, according to early modern standards, has her life hanging in the balance because she can't perform the recitation that's necessary to clear her of wrongdoing. Mm. My, I didn't, I just didn't gather all my notes together in time to bring this up when I was talking about trauma theory, but trauma theory also talks about how speaking about trauma, um, especially in like community, like peers, is incredibly helpful for trauma victims beyond just like talk therapy, being able to speak about a traumatic experience with people who have similar or who are empathetic and understanding of the trauma is a huge part of that reconciliation of like self self object and the reforming of the internal structures that are damaged by trauma. My reading talked about how Lavinia one lacks the ability to do that. And two also lacks the community because she's the only woman in her world and the very male cis male masculine world. Yeah. Marcus is like, this was your daughter. And Titus is like, this is my daughter. Yeah. And he actually goes against the script of... I've got some I've got some information that talks about Titus, specifically okay. <laughs> the, the character of Titus, the father Titus, mm-hmm. and his role yeah. in this ritualized recitation of Lavinia's. So it is really important to note when we talk about Titus in the context of early modern theater that rape is never staged directly in this period. So its absence is structured after the fact. In the case of Shakespeare's Lavinia similar to Virginia or Philomela. They locate her within an ongoing extra theatrical narrative about what rape means and how it should be reported. So the first step is we must confirm her innocence. And then the second step is her male friends and relations must avenge her and their, going back to the Roman idea of this doesn't only affect Lavinia as a person, but it also Mm -hmm. affects the family name. So their honor. And the self-self object of, like, the traumas happened equally to them. Exactly. Because they're connected, yeah. yeah. 
and Solga argues that the stage absence of rape might be intended to reflect not the victim's experience, but the experience of the witness who must absolve the victim and wield the force of the law. Now, outside of the theater, early moderners used a voyeuristic conventional legal trope, in addition to that theatrical device that I just mentioned, that recitation. And one of the major legal documents of the period, the Law's Resolutions of Women's Rights from 1632, advises rape victims to behave more or less as their dramatic counterparts do. So that means doing a show and tell to report their violations to trustworthy men who then seek justice. So in this instance, for early modern women, confession and fictional representation are standardized. Theater makes rape knowable, understandable, and believable for someone who was not there to witness the crime. So just like you were talking about, it's also equally important that the trustworthy men understand and judge her role in this. So while women were advised to act like their theatrical counterparts, the hard truth of rape among the early moderns was that the crime was rarely successfully prosecuted and women were frequently disbelieved. And their willingness to speak of sexual matters might possibly prove that they were complicit in the act. Uh, So we see not much has changed. But in the early modern period, rape remains principally a property crime committed against a woman's male relations and is a threat to men's control over women's quote-unquote unruly bodies. So in the early modern sense, that's the circumstance that Lavinia is placed into. And in early modern England, there was a lot of anxiety surrounding the defining lack of an objective proof of rape combined with prejudices against women's sexual independence. And that meant that the legal burden fell upon victims to prove rape's occurrence by first proving their own innocence. Now, during Elizabeth's reign, rape was defined by the absence of a woman's consent to sexual intercourse with any man who was not her husband. It's still recognized as something that could happen, but it was someone that was not her husband. Prior to Elizabeth's reign, rape was largely a property crime. Although, surprisingly, the Glanville Treatise of 1187, so hundreds of years before Elizabeth, placed the emphasis on the raped body's crime as a corporeal one. So unlike our expectations that like things get better and progress as we move forward, in this case, it shifted backwards. Property crime became the legal ramifications of rape due to gentries gaining legal and political prominence. And so legislation started to shift from rape as a physical experience to a commodity value. By 1285, crime on the body and the absence of women's consent as the determination of a crime was gone. So now by 1285 and up to Elizabeth's reign, the criminal definition of rape was a property crime. And like I said, in Elizabeth's time, like there was this idea that there is this like lack of consent, but it's not, it's like there's a differentiation between the legal definition with the practical definition. So people still viewed it as a property crime even though it was also technically a corporeal one in Elizabeth's reign. So the big question is, how do early modern rape victims prove their refusal, prove that they weren't complicit? According to the law's resolutions of women's rights, there's a hue and cry, which is how women prove their innocence. And the hue and cry goes like this, quote, She ought to go straightway and with hue and cry complain to the good men of the next town shooing her wrong, 
her garments torn, unquote. So she must successfully appeal verbally and physically. So it's this performance. She has to like physically and verbally perform for the good men of the town to prove that she is innocent. The laws's hue and cry becomes a staged tragedy. So the victim must show up in a damaged body, clothes torn. She must showcase the quote unquote damage. And then she must also lament with her voice to signify the truth and prove her innocence. Once she hews and cries, it's then the responsibility of the good men, in this case, like a family member, a father, a patriarchal figure, to believe her. And then once she's believed, then, then they can make an appeal to the authorities. And Ellen Diamond calls this a patriarchal mimesis, so this process by which women serve as a man's mirror up to culture and reflect his image as central. And Solga's and our question is, if these mimetic systems break down, could that allow us to craft ethical contemporary responses to the early modern history of rape representations, especially in a play like Titus? And when you look at Lavinia in Titus, and you mm -hmm. look at the hue and cry, the vocal signifiers, and the physical representation of being distraught and being, um, keep using this word, but quote-unquote damaged. For Lavinia specifically, without hands or tongue, Lavinia lacks the means to hue and cry. She can't show or tell. And Lavinia is unable to tell her father, her uncle, or her brother what happened to her and who they should be fighting. That's the big struggle for the Andronici patriarchs. Mm -hmm. They see something is wrong. She can't tell exactly what is wrong. And if there is revenge that needs to happen, they don't know who they're supposed to be seeking revenge against uh, in order to avenge Lavinia. Yeah, I think like it's worth pointing out that like they figure out pretty quickly because of the references to, to Ovid, yeah, that they figure out pretty qu quickly that she has been raped, but they lack the ability to seek revenge because they don't know who did it and they have no way of finding that out. And she's also not able to prove her innocence. So, you know, that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I say this in the early modern terms. In the early modern terms. In the early modern, sure, yeah. They assume that they assume that there are comparisons between Lavinia and Philomela, but she can't say that. She cannot cry. Yeah, right. Until she she does, in a moment of agency, grab the Ovid book and, like, point out the Philomela story. And then take the staff and write in the sand. Yeah, and that, that confirms for them what they are suspecting, but they can't act on their suspicions because they're just, because they don't have proof which is different than like being like we don't think anything's wrong with her because mm -hmm. she can't speak they know something's wrong they have a pretty strong suspicion but until she is able to tell them what happened through the book and then through the staff they can't go into action and they're just yeah distraught over what has happened to her and what they believe happened to her but they all they have is this like language to talk through what may have happened Willis says, like, quote, their attempts to ease pain through language only intensifies the pain, unquote. Yeah. So it's only when she's able to make her version of the hue and cry right. that they're able, they to, are do able to do that. And Solga proposes that the reason for this, like, they have the suspicion of the Philomela story, but their inability to move forward and seek revenge lies in early modern ideas of justice for victims of rape. Mm -hmm. So until they are provided a name for the person who assaulted the body, they can't yeah. even conceive of the crime as being possible, which we do see Marcus make this guess when he sees Lavinia. 
But in terms of like the early modern view of justice for rape victims, she proposes that they also can't really conceive of it as being possible because Mm -hmm. that step has been skipped due to the mutilation. Right. And then, like we talked about, she is able to point out Philomela in the book, grab the staff, write the names and the word stuprum, and then the men know who did this to her, and they know who to then seek revenge on and further instill trauma onto Tamara's family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Solga also suggests that the scene where she writes out her abuser's name and crime in the sand is a representation of and a reenactment of the crime. She suggests that using her mouth to direct the staff is possibly a staging of the staff as penis and mouth as vagina. I'm not sure my thoughts on that, but... Yeah, I'm not sure mine either because I have a an alternate read yeah. on it. Yeah. This is something she suggests. I'm not on board with this, but I'm also not against it. I just don't like the idea of in-production re-traumatizing Lavinia. Yeah. Yeah. I was saving this till an episode where we like talk about Ovid more, but one of my readings... Sonia L. Brockman's Trauma and the Abandoned Testimony in Titus Andronicus and the Rape of Lucretia. She says that that the writing in the sand recalls the story of Jove's Rape of Io, in which Mm. the young woman Io is transformed into a cow and has to communicate her identity to her family by writing in the dust with her hoof. So another, it's another Ovid reference. I think that's. (laughs) I would rather read it that way because I don't want to reenact. For Lavinia, her, her I think it's attack. more, to me, I'm like, that's a much more logical, like, she's been compared to Philomela, Philomela, and now we're just doubling on top the, like, Ovid stories that Corey. involve rape illusions. Right. These Ovid references would have been so commonplace in the early modern era, where, like, even if you hadn't read the book, you would you know... probably know the story. The story. You would know that the thing is a reference to something, You'd be like, ah, that's the, that's the story about the lady who's turned into a cow. Right. You would go, ah, I know that's a reference. So. Yeah. And one of my readings, William W. Weber's Worse Than Philomel, Violence, Revenge, and Meta-Illusion in Titus Andronicus, in that he states that, quote, quotations easily become cliches. Audiences do not possess uniform knowledge of potential t- source texts, and then many echoes die away unheard, unquote. However... Because essentially, like, this play is chosen to be, like, in the folio, and it was popular enough, clearly people were getting it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Plus, 400 years ago, they had a certain cultural lexicon that we don't have 400 Mm -hmm. years now, but we certainly have a cultural lexicon that people 400 years from us are not going to understand. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, He also says that, like, it's enough for her to, like pick and choose pointing to the Philomel story writing her name in the dust like io for like the picture to be clear enough right. for right and the reference to virginia and yeah 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 i prefer that to this phallic staff and mouth vagina reading but i just want to quickly wrap up what i read this metatheatrical return and the hue and cry performance of rape victims and the law in regards to these crimes how this can inform Lavinia and why 
the Andronici men or why the patriarchy skipped that step of Marcus saying, oh, this reminds me of Philomela and like making a reference to her and then doing nothing for quite mm-hmm. some time. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was my reading. Yeah. I think that this is something that we can take when we look at um, how Titus was performed back in its original practice, as well as today when we incorporate feminist readings and trauma theory. So I think there's a lot of good stuff in what I read. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting how it, how trauma theory is woven in through all these readings up until this point um, and is going to inform what I want to talk about next, which is how do we stage trauma today responsibly, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Like you said, the original staging practices, uh, sexual assault was considered unstageable. And we know Lavinia is meant to appear ravished is the stage direction that Shakespeare gives us. And that's the only clue that's like how he's telling us that she has been raped off stage and that there's some sort of change in her appearance other than her mutilation. In Sonia L. Brockman's Trauma and Abandoned Testimony in Titus Andronicus and the Rape of Lucrece, she notes that this would, quote, draw attention to rape's invisibility, unquote, because it's not seen. And then there's only this appearance of ravished. And she also notes that this would often be signaled by a wig change for the actor playing Lavinia to a disheveled, unbound hair look. She notes that, quote, this is the same physical marker of female madness in plays like Hamlet. I was going to say that's, on. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you just no, 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 go flashing, yeah. flashing Ophelia. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. To be ravished on the Elizabethan stage was to be plunged into madness and forever marked as other, unquote. So that's how trauma was staged, how this particular trauma would be staged in Shakespeare's time. Yes. And that correlates with the hue and cry that was actually done mm-hmm. in that time if you were a victim. Right. Yeah. So when we produce plays with trauma today, I think one tactic or tool that listeners might be familiar with because we put one at the top of the episode is trigger warnings. And I want to talk about like what trigger warnings are and why they're useful and how they're intended to be implemented because there's sometimes pushback against them. And in my reading, Kirsten and Mendoza, Sexual Violence, trigger warnings in the early modern classroom, she speaks on that, quote, when effectively utilized, trigger warnings neither overprotect victims nor standardize people. They enable autonomy and acknowledge the existence of survivors in our midst, acknowledge the array of emotional and psychological preparedness students inhabit before immersing themselves in the content, and help to cultivate an environment of care and solidarity. And Mendoza's article specifically talks about the classroom and um, using trigger warnings with students, but I think it's we can actually extrapolate a lot of what she writes on to the um, audience-theater maker relationship as well as the student-teacher relationship. She says that like in her classroom, she very much grounds in early on in the course that there's a difference between trauma and discomfort. She says, quote, discomfort, rather than something that should be avoided, indicates that meaningful learning is taking place. Panic attacks and paralyzing anxiety, however, are not conducive to the work, unquote. And that's why for her adding trigger warnings to her classroom is important. She also says that they should go further than just suggesting people leave the room. Quote, if the purpose of trigger warnings is to provide access, then alluding to an ambiguous description of care 
but articulating only one approach seems limiting and even counterproductive, unquote. So she goes on to describe some alternatives that she uses in the classroom to just saying, hey, like, if you're not comfortable, walk out of the classroom and miss out on learning. She says that that's actually kind of an ableist approach. I was going to say, yeah, it's telling the person that because you have this quote unquote issue, because this is something that's a problem for you, Mm -hmm. you're going to be omitted from something that could benefit you. Yeah. So out of her list of alternatives, I picked a couple that are potentially very relevant to readers and theater makers, Um, what she calls self-guided analysis, which is coming in with questions. One thing that she does is she will show productions of Titus, for example, and, you know, provide for students, hey, like, why don't you come prepared with questions that you want, like, and here are some examples, like, how did they stage this? What worked for me? And coming in prepared, looking at it from an analytical lens instead of an emotional lens, and providing what the individual who is receiving the content might need to navigate through the content. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like a way that like a theater could do that, right, is by providing guides ahead of time or in the program questions to ask yourself as you watch this content. Just don't just passively receive, but uh, perhaps active engagement is going to serve you better because you're not going to be taken along by the story. Right. She also suggests navigating physical responses. So making it a norm in her classroom for if they're doing small group work for students to come with wearing things that they're more comfortable in or bringing pillows, blankets, things to make themselves more physically comfortable. Or she describes fidget toys or something to... I was thinking too, like stress balls or something like that. Stress balls. Yeah. Yeah. Which to me resonates as like a theater could consider... Uh, sensory-friendly performances as a way to, again, navigate physical responses, making, setting aside some performances that are designated as, you know, there's going to be quieter sounds, lights are going to be on the whole time, and it's going to be more expected that you might need to get up and move, or you may need to pace back and forth, and like, you're not expected to stay seated in a dark room experiencing the content. Um, You can navigate whatever physical response you're having, and it's not going to disturb anyone. Right. She says that effectively used trigger warnings allow for students slash audiences and teachers slash theater makers to engage in an environment of vulnerability and trust, or at the very least, build a mutual rapport. And I would say mutual respect. Mm -hmm. I then also, um, I'm going to switch gears from Titus a little bit um, to talk about um, some more guidelines for staging violence, but specifically sexual assault responsibly. And this comes from Charlene Smith's article, Staging Sexual Assault Responsibly, in which she discusses the practices that she used while producing a production of The Changeling, which is another early modern play that deals with a rape. I saw it referenced as well. It came up a lot in my readings. It was like, there's three that they talked about a lot. Titus, Rape of Lucrece, and The Changeling. The Changeling. So, number one, her first suggestion is to make intimacy choreography part of company culture. She notes that, quote, unexpected contact, particularly in emotionally heightened situations, can trigger past traumas, unquote. And employing an intimacy choreographer from the very beginning and having intimacy choreography as a basis for your theatrical creative process helps all artists 
quote, understand how consent can function in a rehearsal space, unquote. And if, for anyone who's not familiar with intimacy choreography and what that entails, I've pulled up the Intimacy Director Inter- Directors International's The Pillars for Rehearsal and Performance Practice. I do want to note that Intimacy Directors International, or IDI, was a nonprofit organization that existed from 2016 to 2020, founded by Tonya Sina, Alicia Rodis, and Siobhan Richardson. This foundational document broke down the process of intimacy direction into five key components, and these core pillars remain in the public domain for the betterment of artists everywhere. I think it is also, like, just a side note, incredibly valuable and essential. I would even say essential for theaters Mm -hmm. to make that a common practice in their performances. Because to be quite honest, a director does not have the same skill set as an intimacy director. And I think that's just a fact. So yeah, I will link this five pillars document, as with all of our sources today in the notes on our episode description. So what is an intimacy director or choreographer? The intimacy director takes responsibility for the emotional safety of actors and anyone else in the rehearsal hall while they are present. They are trained in movement pedagogy, acting theory, directing, body language, consent, sexual harassment, Title IX, mental health first aid, and best practices for intimacy direction or choreography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not that a standard director cannot get that training, but it's not a necessity or, I mean, it should be, but. Yeah. One of the key factors, much like a fight director or a fight choreographer, is that you're intimacy director or choreographer should be a separate person from your director so that the director is not involved in the conversation because there's often a power dynamic between a director and actors. So having a third party when there are moments of violence or intimacy allows for a neutral party to navigate decisions between the director and the actor and be an advocate for the actor. Mm-hmm. So the pillars are Context. There must first be an understanding of the story and the given circumstances surrounding a scene of intimacy. All parties must be aware of how the scene of intimacy meets the needs of the story and must also understand the story within the intimacy itself. The intimacy is always in service of the story. Communication. There must be open and continuous communication between the director, intimacy director, stage management, and the actors. Avenues for reporting harassment must be made available to the entire ensemble. Consent. Consent must be established between the actors. Permission may be given by a director, script, or choreographer. However, consent can only be given from the person receiving the action. All parties are clear about to which actions they are consenting, and it provides the actors with the agency to remove consent at any time. Choreography. Each scene of intimacy must be choreographed and that choreography will be adhered to for the entire production. Any changes to the choreography must first be approved by the intimacy choreographer. It is the job of stage management to ensure that the choreography is performed as intended. Stage management must also address any discrepancies that may appear in the rehearsal process and all performances. And last but not least, closure. At the end of every rehearsal or scene of intimacy, actors are encouraged to develop a closing moment between them to signify the ending of the work. That is a brief overview of intimacy choreography. Now back to Charlene Smith's staging sexual assault responsibly. 
Her next tip is stage violence non-realistically. She says, quote, there are productive ways to make an audience uncomfortable, and there are harmful ways to make an audience uncomfortable. Too often, we overexalt violence in storytelling for being real and gritty. Mm-hmm. Theater allows for more powerful choices, unquote. You said gritty and my face just went, mm. Mm. Yeah. Like, yes, yes. These two things combined remind me of an experience I had, and this is a quote that I'm going to give to an actor that I did work with in a moment of intimacy choreography. And as we worked through intimacy choreography, the intimacy choreography for the work we were doing, he said that an intimacy choreographer he'd previously worked with shared the idea of there's a difference between lights on discomfort and lights off discomfort. Lights on, you're making connections, things are new, things are different, but it's good. It's good discomfort. It's learning, kind Mm -hmm. of going back to discomfort doesn't necessarily need to be avoided, but there is such a thing as lights out discomfort where you shut down. Smith goes on to talk about um, her production of The Changeling. In The Changeling, the character of Beatrice Joanna experiences a sexual assault at the hands of the character De Flores. And in her production, Beatrice Joanna wore a dress that could be removed and used as a puppet by the actor playing De Flores. Smith notes, quote, the puppet thus suggested that Beatrice Joanna was having a dissociative episode, which according to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network is a detachment from a reality and one of the many defense mechanisms the brain can use to cope with the trauma of sexual violence, unquote. They also used ash powder, by the actor playing Beatrice Joanna to place handprints on her body after the other actor left the stage. One of the initial actions of this moment of violence was the actor who was playing DeFlores placing a ash powder handprint over her mouth, and then she proceeded to place additional handprints on her body after the other actor left the stage with the puppet. To make the invisible visible? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Smith says that, quote, without staging any sexual touch between the two actors, this blocking implied the violation of Beatrice Joanna's body, unquote. The handprints remained for the rest of the play, suggesting the lasting effects of such trauma. Mm. And as you point out, the lasting invisible effects. Mm-hmm. Her next tip is to remember to take care of your audience. In addition to trigger warnings, her production held community conversations after every performance, They allowed the audience to stay and encouraged conversations about what they just saw, which again links back to what we briefly discussed of one of the ways to relieve and help heal trauma is to discuss it with people in community. Mm. She also suggests disagree with the play. She says when dealing with early modern works specifically that have, as you were saying, a different cultural understanding of violence, specifically sexual violence, she says it's okay to disagree with what's on paper in the play and her production added an epilogue where the cast collectively washed off the ash handprints in a symbolic reclaiming of Beatrice Joanna's body that sought to restore her dignity and agency in a play that ends with her suicide as the only possible way to relieve the shame of her male relatives that was brought on by her assault. And in the final moment, the only handprint left was the first handprint, and she wiped that off herself. So she says, it is okay to disagree with the play and add to and add something that makes a different statement. 
I like that. And I wonder where theater practitioners can create that in Titus specifically, because mm -hmm. similar to Beatrice Joanna, Lavinia doesn't make it to the end. Titus kills her because that's the yeah. only solution to him right. for the crime that was done onto her. Yeah. After he helps her seek revenge, the only thing that's left is for him to regain. Yeah. Yeah. And Smith suggests the following, specifically in regards to the changeling, but I think we can also have it apply to Titus. She says, give the power of storytelling to the people most affected by the story. Quote, it matters who gets to tell these stories. Of the 49 professional productions of The Changeling I found in my research, only 10 were directed by women. Unquote. She also notes that, quote, many stagings of The Changeling have refused to treat DeFloris as a villain or have suggested that Beatrice Joanna deserves what happens to her or have believed that Beatrice Joanna and DeFloris belong together. This is a complete misunderstanding of how sexual assault is perpetrated unquote which is why it is important to give the stories give the power of storytelling to the people most affected by the story allow people who are most affected by sexual assault to produce direct lead creatively lead productions that deal with sexual assault allow people who are most affected by racism to have the power of storytelling and lead the storytelling of plays that deal with racism mm-hmm yeah, and I have a very, very strong uh, reaction going on for myself when I think about the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet that we unfortunately watched and how the scene with Ophelia was handled. And mm -hmm. we're not yet to our Titus wrap-up, so I don't have those examples in the vault, but that's an example of sexual violence. Yeah. And it was directed by a white cis man who put more trauma onto the character and I would argue traumatized the audience yeah and I would say that like being part of the group most affected by the trauma that's in the story does not necessarily mean that a practitioner is going to be is going to be careful and conscious right I do want to bring up there was this notorious production of Titus at the Globe in 2014 directed by Lucy Bailey where audiences ex experienced, quote, intense physiological reactions such as panic attacks, vomiting, and fainting, unquote. That doesn't necessarily sound like a trauma-informed production process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like when we were talking about King Lear back a year ago, and we were talking about sexist representations in Lear, and just because you are a cis woman... That doesn't mean you're going to not treat characters through sexism. Same mm -hmm. thing applies here. So that's an excellent point to bring up because it's true. Just because someone is part of a community that's affected by the uh, not so great parts of the storytelling doesn't mean that they are necessarily going to have the tools or the want to undo, to work against the trauma. They may accidentally or on purpose, continue to continue the trauma. Right. Yeah. So I guess at the end of all of this, I'm just thinking about how trauma in Titus, trauma in Shakespeare, trauma in any art does need to be handled, not just with care, but with education, empathy, 
and real intention, right? So yeah, I'm glad we did this. It places Titus and the horrific events of this play into such a another light that I, I look forward to seeing theater practitioners hopefully utilize. Yeah, I think that we can move forward and choose to be breakers of the trauma cycle when it comes to the trauma involved in producing these works. We can um, work towards not traumatizing our artists or our audiences and breaking those cycles of violence. And with all that, thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From King John, Act 5, Scene 1, Spoken by Bastard Be great in act, as you have been in thought. Let not the world see fear and sad distrust govern the motion of a kingly eye. Be stirring as the time, be fire with fire, threaten the threatener, and outface the brow of bragging horror. So shall the inferior eyes that borrow their behaviors from the great grow great by your example, and put on the dauntless spirit of resolution.